But let's read the entirety of chapter 17, verse 1 to 18. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of, the, of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a cup, a golden cup, full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of, of, the, of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of, of the world, will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not, and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was, that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is lord of lords and king of kings, and those, who, sorry, those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they are the beast that, sorry, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put into their hearts to carry out this purpose, of, or his purpose of being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Okay, as I always say, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> if you want to get all the nitty-gritty of what all these images are, come on a Tuesday morning, because I just can't do it all on a Sunday. Sunday isn't for telling you exactly what's in the passage in the same way. It's for telling you what the passage says and how it impacts our life. So I just can't do everything. But let me start with this. There's a theme of exile that runs through the entire Bible. So exile occurs in the garden, God exiles humanity from his presence, and that theme continues off and on throughout the entire, entirety of scripture, uh, up until the point where God comes as an exile into the world to redeem it, and then he sends us out into this exiled world, into Babylon, to do our part in, in, uh, in living out his calling and his mission for the church. And this historical fact of exile is not just history, but it is also a lens through which we see who we are, who God is, and how we are to relate to the world. Exile is a theme that we should be taking to ourselves because we are in exile. And 
although it's an oversimplification, I will say every Christian and every church is either one of these next, has one of these two perspectives about life and ministry, and sometimes they combine them as a hybrid, but generally there's two ways of seeing things. The first one is through a Jerusalem mindset. And folks who see the world and churches that understand the world through a Jerusalem perspective, a Jerusalem lens, see it, think about the time of Solomon. Solomon was, was, is really the golden age. Israel doesn't have much of a golden age. It's pretty short. David can't really be said to be a golden age because there's a lot of turmoil. Solomon has a short reign where things are pretty good for a bit. And in that time, a lot of churches remember that time in the modern time. We think about Christendom, how the church used to be a normal, churches were looked down on. It was expected that you'd go to church. Uh, Christians had influence in the culture. Pastors were, st were still thought to be key members of the city rather than just ignorant, uneducated bumpkins as they are now. And in that view of Solomonic Jerusalem perspective, churches that think like Jerusalem tend to be churches that build like Solomon did. Solomon built for Jerusalem, for Israel, with very little attention to the outside world. He built temples, he built palaces, he built structures. Everything flourished under Solomon. Arts, laws, wisdom, all sorts of things. And one of the mindsets of Jerusalem is today and was then, it wasn't so much let's go into the world as much as it was bring the world in to see how wonderful we are. Like Sheba, remember how Sheba comes to Israel and says, let me see the splendor of Solomon's reign. And many people in the church, many churches think this way. They think like Field of Dreams. If we build it, they will come. If we have a great Christmas pageant, people will come to it. If we have a polished service, people will come to it. And this is, it comes with this subtle idea that the world is expected to come, and, and, is, and we desire that they come, and we expect them to come, and absorb and conform to our values. Like they should come in, see what we're doing, and become like us. And that's a Jerusalem mindset. A Jerusalem mindset is a very comfortable one, a very secure one, because everything's going quite well. But there's also this other one that is the better one, the more biblical one, which is an exile perspective. And this is rooted in the experience of God's people as exiles. And so, a people that live in exile know how tenuous everything is, because in a moment, your, the way you worship, the way you live, the way you think, all of it can be taken from you in a moment. And it was taken away from Israel in a moment. And so people who live with this exile mentality um, understand that they live in a foreign land. They, it's marked not by comfort um, and, and security, but rather by discomfort and insecurity. We know we don't belong in this world, we don't fit in, and as a result, we're always trying to understand that dynamic. And we embrace the fact that we're in exile. It's part of what God has done. He sent us into exile. And the exilic church knows um, that they don't expect anyone to come to the church and conform, but rather they think it's our job to prioritize going out and preparing people to go out into their workplace, which is why we do faith and work stuff here. We prepare you to be who you are in the world rather than to say, bring them here and let Carl transform them with his brilliant preaching, which won't happen, by the way. It's not going to happen. And that's not the model of the exilic church. And so in Jerusalem, you see, you're the dominant culture. And everything you do, is your, your identity as a Christian is reinforced in Jerusalem. Remember if you were alive in those times when church was still, you know, you'd still find Billy Graham on TV. And not on those Christian channels, but on real TV. Um, and you would find marks of Christianity all over the place. There are people who would still be praying at schools. 
See, in that sort of a Jerusalem, every time you walk through the streets, your identity as a Christian is reinforced by the things you see. But as an exile, you go into a world like Paul does in, in Athens in Acts 17, like Israel in Jeremiah 29. They go out into the world and they see only reminders that they are not part of it. And so the struggle for the exilic church, for us, is how do we go out into the world, serve the world, share the gospel, but not become the world? How do we live in Babylon? That's the question that we're being posed here. And so when we turn now with that, with that opening to chapters 17 to 19 in Revelation, what you have here is these three chapters expand on the previous 12. From chapter 4 to 16, you're talking about, John is speaking about the destruction and the end of things and the end times and all that. These three chapters provide, they, they fill in the gaps, right? And so chapter 17 specifically says, you and I are in exile, that Babylon is the dominant spirit. The city of Babylon, the spirit of Babylon, is one of the powers used by this great beast to affect, to harm and hinder God's people. And so we are all, in effect, living as exiles. And it tells us that, and then tells us how we're, how we're supposed to live in it. So the three things we're going to look at quickly, as quickly as I can, is the heart of Babylon, the seduction of Babylon, and the response to Babylon. Okay? So let's move quickly. Heart of Babylon. First, this isn't, it's really not that hard a chapter to understand when you read it carefully. This woman, Babylon, who is referred to as the mega pornea in Greek, that's a harsh word, the mega prostitute, um, is Babylon. And she is riding, and I'll explain what I mean by Babylon, but she's riding this beast, and you know the beast. We, introduced, we were introduced to him in chapter 13. This is that beast who is sent by the dragon and given authority to impact and influence and use governments and national systems to affect the people of God. And one of the tools it uses, one of the extensions, is it has this woman, figuratively speaking, Babylon, the spirit of Babylon that comes, and specifically, she comes and uses the tool of seduction. And it's in the form of the city, in the form of our urban cities. And she uses the cities to seduce people away from God. It's pretty straightforward all in all. And we know because he's direct, she's directly referred to in this way. Verse 5 says her name is Babylon the Great. But of course, you can't be, she can't be referring to Babylon, the actual city, because not only did it cease to exist, at least with any power, but um, later on, the very last verse of the chapter says, the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Well, Babylon never had dominion over the people, the uh, kingdoms of the earth. So what she's saying is symbolically, the spirit of Babylon inhabits all cities. All cities. Now, it doesn't mean all cities are bad, quite the opposite. But it does say there's this spirit that looks and uses cities, the things that we build, to turn them away from God. And this is what this woman is. And it's not surprising. Well, I mean, look, it goes on. She's referred to as seated, being seated on waters have, uh, and on heads, seven heads and ten horns. Now, the waters, they tell us, I mean, this is wonderful because John is like a commentary. The waters are the nations. So the spirit is, is trans, it, it, it spans, it's pen, it's pen American Airlines, it's everywhere. Well, they don't exist any longer, bad example. But they're everywhere. She's everywhere over all the cities. And when it says that she sits on these seven heads and talks about kings and these other ten kings that are to come, seven and ten we know are these numbers of completion. The seven seems to be that John is saying, Rome. And we know that because when she says she sits on these seven hills or mountains, we know Rome was literally described and had a festival 
about being the city of seven hills, because it was literally built on seven hills. So John is saying, Rome is now the spirit of Babylon. Paul, and we'll talk later, Peter refers to her in the same way, Rome in the same way. And, but it's not just that. These 10 kings that will come, says John, are, are evidence that all the kings that will follow, all the cities that will follow, will be influenced by her. And so, the cities of the world. We're talking about the urban world. Not by, not, I'm not, I don't want to hide it. Every city has the spirit of Babylon lurking in it somewhere. That is the assumption here. Now, if we're going to understand who Babylon is, you have to understand where Babylon came from. And biblically speaking, Babylon is rooted in the story of Babel, the Tower of Babel in chapter 11 of Genesis. Now, in that chapter, what, it's not the first city ever built. The first city ever built was by Cain after he leaves God's presence in chapter 4 of Genesis. He builds a city. One day I'll preach that one, not now. But when we get to chapter 11, they decide all humanity after the flood, it's like a reboot. If you attended my Old Testament class, you'd know this, that the, the, after the flood, there's a reboot, and the language of the, of the flood and after the flood is mirrored is, and is mirroring the Genesis 1 and 2 accounts, as if God is saying, I'm starting fresh again. So it's not by accident that when, we, when they build a city in chapter 11, they, the thing they say is, come, let us build ourselves a city. It sounds a lot like Genesis 1, come, let us make man in the image of God. And what we have is humanity, instead of making something that honors God, they say, let us build for ourselves. Actually, not that. It literally says, let us build ourselves a city. So what they're doing is humanity at that point is saying, the city is going to be made in my image. I'm going to build it in my image. There'll be a city, and at the very center of that city is the tower. We often think about the Tower of Babel. The tower is secondary. The city is what was built first. And at the center of every city is this desire to be self-determining. The desire to say, I decide who I am. Nobody else will. I'm born with a gender I don't like. I decide what gender I am. I'm, I have a family I don't like. I decide. You tell me I should be this person because my grandmother is this person. I decide. And everything we do, we say, I will not take a name from anyone. I will make my own name. And this is at the very core of Babel, of Babel, which eventually becomes Babylon. And when it says make a name for ourselves, it's not talking about a reputation. That's something I often hear that, build a reputation for yourself. That's not what it says. It's saying, let me fashion for myself a name. Meaning, I will not, because every time, you've heard this before, in the Old Testament, when you name something, there's a relationship built and established that says, I have dominance over that which I've named. My children are mine, I name them. Adam names the animals, they are his to, 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 be, um, uh, to, be, to rule over. And so when we name ourselves, what we're saying is, I don't want to be beholden to anyone. I will fashion a name for myself. And this is at the center of every single city that Babylon lurks in. That doesn't mean all cities are bad, quite the opposite. But it does mean every city has this at its core as the idol it's trying to draw you to. And we'll go into more detail about that. So that's the first thing. Okay? We try to build a city devoid of God. So that's the heart of Babylon. And it's still here today. And if you don't believe it, it's a lot easier to... So let me be clear. This is some systematic theology. You can never separate yourself from God. Okay? No one can separate themselves from God. God must separate himself from them. You don't have the power to separate yourself. You can say, I'm not choosing God. You can choose to live contrary to his, his choice for you. But 
if there was ever real separation between you, you would cease to exist. The only reason that you cease to exist is because God says, fine. That's it. God is sovereign, not you. So when we build a city that says, I'm going to push God out of it, it is actually a futile effort. It's impossible to do. But we try, and it becomes easy to believe that he isn't there. Because when you walk through cities, big cities especially, what do you see? Structures built by us. You see billboards, shops, people. All of it is a reminder and a reinforcement of the fact that we have tried to push God out of it. Because why is a city built? Cities are built because I, as a family in the, in the ancient world, I'm a farmer, and I have crops, but I need meat, and I need tools, and I need a market, and I also need protection, and I need a police force, and I need laws. So people begin to gather for security, but ju not just from security from one another, but also they try to insulate themselves from any problem that God would bring to them. I will make a city for myself, says Cain. He makes a city. I can't get into Cain. I would like to. And every city then, if we're not careful, is built on the foundation of, let me build for myself so that God, can, I don't need to trust God for it. And this again is at the very core. And everything we build then has marks of this on it. This is why the new heaven and new earth must be let down. You don't build it. Redeemer does not build the kingdom of God. None of you build the kingdom of God. Uh, God builds his kingdom. Because everything we build is riddled with our self-interest. Okay? I can't go into all that. So this is the heart of Babylon. Okay? The heart of Babylon is, let me build for myself. But what, then there's a seduction that comes into cities. And if you've ever been in cities, maybe you've noticed this. Cities are fascinating. I love cities. I loved Toronto when I went to school there. I, I drank the Kool-Aid entirely. And it's not just me. Have you noticed that Israel marvels at Jer Jericho when it sees it? The walls, the grandeur of them. Have you noticed that Sheba marvels at Jerusalem? How the Israelites marveled at Babylon? How visitors to Rome marveled? How John, even here, says he marveled at seeing this woman. He marvels at seeing the beast. There's something incredible and awe-inspiring about seeing it. And there's this book written by a man named James Weldon Johnson. He's an African-American, uh, about 100 years ago, I guess. And he wrote a book called um, the, An Autobiography, or The Autobiography, of an Ex-Colored Man. And although he was African-American, he was light-skinned. So he wrote a book about a light-skinned black man who's able to pass as white. And he walks through the, the American South and then into New York City, and it just chronicles the, how he sees black people are treated as a, as a guy almost... Uh, undercover. But in it, he speaks about New York City. Here's what he says. New York City is the most fatally fascinating thing in America. She sits like a great witch at the gate of the country, showing her alluring white face and hiding her crooked hands and feet under the folds of what her white garments, constantly enticing thousands from afar within and tempting those who come from across the seas to go no further. And all these become her, the victims of her caprice. Some she at once crushes beneath her cruel feet. Others she condemns to a fate like that of galley slaves. A few she favors and fondles, riding them high on the bubble or bubbles of fortune. Then with a sudden breath, she blows the bubbles out and laughs mockingly as she watches them fall. So this is a pretty cynical view of, of cities, but it does capture the seductive nature of cities. Seduction is uh, quite literally means to... Um, to try to, to uh, influence someone to a perspective or a way of a course of action that is going to harm them. And this is what cities 
if we're not careful, do. And it, the way they do it is they appeal to our imaginations. Cities try to make us, they offer us something that doesn't yet exist, but might exist. You want to be the best singer in the world? Go to Toronto or New York. Don't stay in the country. Go to, go to the city. You want to be somebody? Go to the city. You want to influence the world? Go to the city. You want to be protected from poverty and insulated? Why are cities full of the poverty-stricken? Not because it creates poverty, but because people with nothing go to cities because it has more resources and more possibility of living. Studies are clear. And cities are where people flock to for opportunity. And there's this idea that if I go there, then I might be okay. In fact, who knows the great, well, great, air quotes, great, new song by, um, not new, song, by Frank Sinatra, New York, New York, remember? Listen to these wonderful words, but not so wonderful. I want to wake up in a city that never sleeps and find I'm king of the hill, top of the heap. These small town blues, they're melting away. I'll make a brand new start of it in old New York. If I can make it there, I'll make it anywhere. It's up to you, New York, New York. And you see the assumption. The assumption is, if I have a need, a desire, something nagging at me, a, a need for meaning, belonging, success, go to the city. The city will answer it. The city is the maker of dreams. If I can make it there, I'll make it anywhere. And so what the city does is says, don't trust God for your satisfaction and your meaning. Come to the city. We'll make you the singer you want to be. You'll be the executive you want. You'll have the penthouse suite. And of course, as Johnson points out, it doesn't usually happen. So it's not by accident that Peter then at the end of his letter says very directly, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings and so does Mark, my son. She who is at Babylon. Babylon doesn't exist. Peter is making a point of saying Rome is the cultural offspring of Babylon. The culture war between God and the world is now being raged in Rome, and it will in everywhere that Babylon resides. And again, cities are not bad, but the spirit of Babylon in the city is bad. The sexual connotations are unmistakable in cities, the seductive quality, Proverbs 7. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her, and as an ox goes to the slaughter. And we fall for it. It's easy to fall for the allure of cities, not just for our promise, but for everything it offers. Anything. And think about the way, and, and you know, every time you go to a city, remember this. If you're not careful, you're going to be seduced by this claim. Come, let us build ourselves. Come, let us build ourselves. And look at how she's described by John. Her appearance, she's purple. She's wearing purple and red and jewels. She is authoritative, she is violent, powerful, and wealthy. Understandable why he marvels. She's drunk and makes other people drunk, meaning, this is fascinating, her job is to replicate. She's the mother of other prostitutes, it says. Meaning, her job is not just to, drunk you, to drug you, but to then convert you. And when it says that those who have slept with her, you know what it means? When you sleep with somebody, biblically speaking, you become one flesh. So when you, when, you, when you accept the views of Babylon, you're not just accepting a theory, you're mating. You're becoming one with her. And as a result, then you become the offspring of her. And then what do you start doing? Producing others. You want to do well? Get thee to New York, to Toronto, to Niagara Falls. Don't stay in the country. Don't stay in the suburbs. Now, and you know who understood this really well? And actually a really old, not really old, she's dead, a poet, an uh, English poet named Christina Rossetti. 
and she's a, nobody really knows her, but she wrote this, this sonnet called Babylon the Great, and look at how well she understood things. First four, verses, four lines. Foul is she, and ill-favored, set askew. Gaze not upon her, till thou dream her fair, lest she should mesh thee in her wanton hair, adept in arts, grown old, yet ever new. Now, she says, don't stare at Babylon too long, because the longer you stare at her, the more she's going to look pretty good. But remember that she is foul, ill-favored, and set askew. And the reason she'll seduce you is she says in the last line, she's adept in the arts, in arts grown old yet ever new. Every generation, let's, use, let's just use sexual identity and sex as, in general as an example. Every generation in human history has its view of what is taboo sexually. Once upon a time, it was the ankle. Right? Once upon a time, in different cultures, I think I recall reading that there's parts of the world where the number of rings a woman can put in her nose is the, a symbol of attraction. Okay, sure, I don't know. Um, but every generation has this. But then you see what she does. Every generation, they're developed anew. And they change and change. She's really good at reinventing taboos, at reinventing seductions. And this is why in the passage it says, she was, is not, but will rise again. Babylon will disappear for a while, but she's going to come back just as strong, just as seductive. It's going to keep happening, and the longer you look at her, the more, the more danger you're in, because she comes not just through the, back, the front door, but through the back door. When you walk through a mall, it's impossible not to understand what the agenda of the world is in Babylon. You're going to see flags of a certain description everywhere. You're going to see scantily clad women everywhere. You're going to see things that tell you you deserve a break. You're going to see things that say your life will be better if you had this iPhone. It's just the way the world is. And over time, if you see it over and over again, you're going to believe it. You and I are not that clever, not that strong. In the car today, we were talking about how um, sometimes you listen to music and you hate it, but when you listen to it a thousand times, you start to like it. Have you ever had that? Listen, that's why I like Sinatra now. When I was a kid, I hated it, but my parents listened to it. Now I'm, I love it. And when you're in the world, the hope of Babylon is the more you see those flags at a Starbucks, the more you're going to think, is it really so bad? Come on, it's not that bad, is it, Carl? And then even that is skewing it because it makes it sound like it's, I think it's bad in the sense of, uh, you know, I hate people who differ, disagree with me. But you see, the whole thing is just built on, let's subtly change the narrative. But of course, it's not just back door, it's also front door. Sometimes laws, structures... Uh, are in place that Babylon is happy to enforce, that make that ramp things up. And so, she's seductive. We fall for her, and that's the biggest challenge we face. But now how do we respond then? I'll give a simple response, and then, and then very practical. Well, they're all practical. The simple response is this. Nothing should define you as your name. Nothing, not your sexuality, not your gender, not your job, not your family, not your bank account, not your how many times you read the Bible, nothing but Christ alone. Christ defines who you are. Because anything else that will define you will demand everything but never deliver on the promise. So let me use this one example. If you can earn a name, which is exactly what, what Babel tried to do, if you could say, I'm going to earn my name as a CEO, as a good mom, as a good dad, as a good pastor, whatever, pick anything you want. That name, if it can be earned, will be unearned or can be unearned. Look no further than the cancel culture. Look how careers are falling because of a bad tweet. Look how the, the um, our, now we're hearing about worldwide famines, right? Look how quickly your security can fall. How quickly do your finances drop 
if you've been investing in the wrong way. You see, any name that you earn that isn't in Christ can be taken away, but the one that Christ gives can't be taken away because it's not rooted in your effort, but in what he has done and accomplished. He died for you and gave you a name, and therefore, it can only be removed if he removes it, and he says he won't remove it once he's given it. And this is the practical part. We'll get more practical in a second. If your name is given to you and you can't lose it, then you are immune to the seductions of the city. Let me explain quickly. One, when you go to a city and it says, Carl, if you want to make it here, you want to be the big cheese, go here. Don't pass through Niagara Falls, it's too small. Go to Toronto. Go to New York City. That has no appeal to me any longer because I realize that my reputation is not dependent on what anybody else thinks. This, you know that psalm that says, this world has nothing for me? Do you believe it? The gospel says, if Christ is your identity, there's no seduction, no song the woman can make as I pass her door that could cause me to go astray. You know the guy on the street dresses like a pizza and he tries to get you to go off your route and go and buy a pizza? That's subtle, but that's what this is. That's what seduction is. It's a slow attempt to try to drag you off the path. But if you don't have any, if they have nothing, see, when we go out for dinner, you know why we never get uh, dessert, Sarah and I? We're too full. We can't. Who, who eats dessert? Shame on you if you can eat dessert after dinner nowadays. It's so much food. But the reason I can't, not because I have moral strength, but because I'm so full, I have no room for it. Thank you, but you have nothing that, that appeals to me. It doesn't matter how good it looks on the menu. I'm full. I got nothing. And so when the world makes an offer, increasingly we need to look to our name and to the cross and say, I don't need it. Yes, this woman is beautiful, but I don't need this. This isn't going to help me. It's just, it's just a lie. Yes, this, this job, yes, this desire to gossip or to slam somebody or cancel them, it seems appealing, but it's useless to me. There's no room for it in my life. And this frees us up so that then we, don't, we go to a city then, our city, not to take from it, but to love it. Because most of us are here in Niagara Falls because of something we are taking from it. Cheap, uh, cheap uh, housing, a job, family, you've just been here forever, good schools for your kids, whatever it is, we usually go to cities to take from it. Whereas the gospel says, stop it. Christ came to the city not to take from it, but to give to it. So the Christian response when we are full and our identity is in him is to go and say, where can I go and be the most effective for the gospel? Is that Niagara Falls? Good. Let me plant there and try to serve it. And so uh, it goes much more. Not just that. If your identity is in Christ, you're free to appreciate the city properly. Because when God goes to Nineveh with, through Jonah, have you noticed he's kind of, he's, he's, re, he's pretty sober about it. He says, Jonah, the city is so bad it's going to be judged. It's terrible. There's an ugliness to the city. But he comes with a call for repentance and compassion because he appreciates both. It's sinful, but it's people that God loves. The reason cities are loved by God is not because they're cities, but because there's a lot of people there and God loves people. And when you become a person who isn't rooted in the city uh, for your identity, you can then look at it and say, gosh, there's a lot of ugly things about Niagara Falls. There's a lot. Have you ever been nighttime off the strip? There's a lot of ugly things. You ever been down Lundy's Lane going towards Welland? It's ugly. But you can also look at it and say, but it's full of people that Christ died for. Look at the potential it could be if we could just get the gospel in there. And so as a result, you can appreciate the city properly, not become a poo-pooer of it and say, it's rotten, just let it go. But also not somebody who glosses over it and says, it's beautiful, I love my city. You can be both. You can appreciate it soberly. Now, let me move into the very practical as we close, but it's going to take a second. 
Why should we care about the city? And then how do we do it very practically as a church and as individuals? So why should we care? It's very simple, I think. Um, cities are loved by God. Okay, that's obvious. But have you ever noticed that all through Scripture, why is it that the dragon and the lamb are both fighting for the city? They're both vying for it. It's not just because God loves it, but because cities are powerful cultural creators. As the city goes, so goes the world. Like it or not. And I know people sometimes get frustrated and they say, but, but Carl, the country, if it wasn't for the country, nobody could eat. Stop it. The reason the country can have big farms is because somebody in the city dreamt up those machines and then produced them. We are, it's not a comparison here. Okay, it's not a comparison. Live in the country. There's nothing wrong with that. But here's why we must focus on cities. And if you can live in a city, I'll even go so far as to say, if you can live in a city, you should as a Christian. Okay, let me explain. But let me just look at the power of cities first. In Canada, 82% of people live in cities. 82%. That number was about 3% 150 years ago. Cities, just where we live. Now, 84.4% of all economic growth comes from urban areas in Canada. 65% comes from our six largest cities. In the world, if you take the 10 largest mega regions of cities, they only have 6.5% of the world's population, but produce 43% of all the economy in the entire world. New York City alone is more powerful economically than Mexico and India. One city. Not just that, the UN says that right now, 180,000 people a day move into cities from the, from the country. That means in 30 days, five and a half million people have moved, which means the greater Toronto area is recreated every single month in this world. The world is moving incredibly quickly to cities. And I'll assure you this, what we are wearing today is not determined by what they're wearing in Ridgeway. Fashion, technology, and I'm not knocking I live there. I'm not knocking it. I'm simply saying, the way the world moves is based on how things are done in cities. Technological advances, um, I've got a, a long list of them here. Technology, medicine, arts, agricultural industry are all dreamt up and produced in the city. Policies, laws, media, fashion, everything is shaped in cities, which is why when Jim Clifton, who is the CEO of the Gallup, you know, Gallup the survey company, was asked, where's the, um, where's the next big thing? Like, we're reaching this world where we're struggling with ma making enough food for the world and gas costs and war. Where, where's the next breakthrough going to come? And this man, I don't know if he's a Christian. I have no idea. But here's what he says. From the combination of the forces within big cities, great universities, and their powerful local leaders, the cornerstone of these three is cities. As goes the leadership of top 100 American cities, so goes the country's economic future. And it goes even for Look at the Bible. Did you notice that the apostles take the message to cities, the seven letters were to seven cities, not to seven rural areas. And I think I've told you before, the word pagan means country dweller. Because the apostles and the Christians realized, man, the country is slow to adopt the gospel. They won't let go of their pagan roots. They won't let go of it. Because in cities, Paul understood this, Jesus understood it, in cities, ideas move. I, in cities, one of the things you find, in fact, let me go with this, one more quote before I say it. Richard Florida, who's a prophet U of T, the Rotman School of Business, says cities are cauldrons of diversity and difference. They're fonts for creativity and innovation. In cities, you find ideas flow and minds are open. Closed as well, but they're open. Debate is always happening. 
We find in cities that the, the gospel spread far quicker because you're forced to, your assumptions are challenged. You're a Christian, you're a Democrat, whatever you think you are, you're challenged in the city because you're rubbing up against people who are different from you. You're forced to because you're so close to one another. And as a result, your views are either sharpened or, or destroyed. So yes, people lose their faith in cities, but they also sharpen their faith in cities. The Reformation was a distinctly and uniquely urban event because the printing press and proximity to people allowed the things to, to change. Ideas move quicker, assumptions change quicker, cities are not stagnant, they're always moving, which is part of the terror I think people find in them. And if a church doesn't understand how to do ministry in an urban context, you will be left behind. We will be left behind because this is the way the world is. And so we go into it because God says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to change the world. And you don't do it, I'm sorry, only from the country. Country's important. Rural parts are important. But the cities is where the decisions are made. If you want to influence culture, you must be in the cities. And here's the practical end. How should we do this then? We should respond to the city in four ways. One, admit that we live in Babylon and not in Jerusalem. Just admit it. Stop trying to think that the world's going to come to a night in Bethlehem and be transformed. It's not going to happen. I'm not saying stop doing night in Bethlehem. I'm saying stop thinking that just by showing up, something wonderful is going to happen. This hasn't been the case for a long time. Stop holding on to it and look at what God has done. Could you imagine if Israel, when they were sent to, in Jeremiah 29, which we talked, John mentioned earlier, if God, had, if God had said, go now into the world, into, the, into Babylon, and make gardens, have children, and serve and pray for that city. What, what if they had said, no thank you, no thank you, we're going to keep just trying to build Jerusalem here. That's not what God wants. It's not his intention. We live in Babylon. Get used to it and try to figure out, like the early church did, about what it means to, to engage the culture rather than retreat from it. So that's the first thing we have to do. Second thing, develop appreciative attitudes towards the city. Talk about the city needs to be positive in everything we do. Let's not just complain about the city. Let's not, and you know what? Let's also do everything we can to dispel the lies about cities. And we've all had them. Cities are too expensive. No, they're not. They just require sacrifice, and you don't want to sacrifice sometimes. But they are expensive, but not too expensive for most of us. Cities are oh, um, bad for families. You know, we need country because our kids won't develop right. It's nonsense. I'm not saying it's not benefits to being in the country. There are. But don't pretend like kids can't be raised in the arts and cultural meccas of our cities. Besides, you live in the country. All of us do. I do it too. Where do I go for the best food, the best theater, the best stores? Where? Cities. I don't say, let's stay on my 12 acres in Ridgeway. Best food here. My wife is a very good cook. So we go. So we, we need to do, develop these appreciative ideas for the city. The city doesn't just corrupt faith. It's a place where faith is found and harnessed and where it's perpetuated. So yes, the city's difficult, but it's not impossible to live here. It's not a, a cesspool we leave. So we need to develop these appreciative approaches to the city. Third, Become a, uh, cultivate a counter-cultural way of being in the city. This means being rooted in sacrifice, uh, a life of sacrifice. It means being community, because nothing is less culturally uh, uh, normal nowadays than being together. Right? So every time we gather here on a Sunday and in small groups, every time we do that, we're pushing against the cultural tide that says it's all about me. And we instead say, no, I don't always love everybody I, I worship with, because we're very different, but it's valuable. And so we develop these countercultural ideas and we show, we're meant to show the world how sex, money, and power can be used for restoration rather than for destruction and despair. 
We're meant to be a place that shows what forgiveness is and mercy is when the rest of the world says cancel them. We're meant to be a countercultural force. And then the last thing is we have to be radically committed to doing the good of our city. And this means working for peace, security, justice, prosperity of our neighbors, especially the poor. And this again is Jeremiah 29. Love and serve the cities that we are called to as exiles. There should be no better citizens in Niagara Falls than the people who are first and foremost citizens of heaven. We ought to be the best possible citizens in our city because we are motivated by the best possible citizen, Christ. Now, we exist, churches exist to use the resources that God has given to serve and to create a flourishing city wherever we can. Christ is our model for this. He came to Babylon not to take, but to give, even his life. And that means no cost is too high. So as we push against Babylon, we have to remember we don't run from Babylon. We engage it. We have to think. We have to say, how does this ministry we've been doing forever, how does it look now? Just because we've been doing a ministry forever doesn't mean it's right anymore. Maybe we have to change some of it and how we do it so that we can engage the city and push against Babylon. And that's what's going on here. We do it because Christ did it for us. And if he had not engaged with us because he said, you know what, it's a cesspool, let them go, where would we be? And so we spend ourselves for the sake of the city. With that, let's pray.